everybody, welcome back to The Followers. So today is episode number 52. I've been correctly advised before we came on air. We have episode 52 and today we have Connacht SNC coach Barry O'Brien on. So yeah, we haven't had a rugby person on in a while, so it was great to get get an insight on how to do the, they do things in Connacht. How did you find it, John? What was your favourite part? I think the whole point of setting up a barrier was just for me to have a catch-up with a lad I went to college with. I, I didn't really care about the rugby stuff. Um, really interesting, though. Like, when we were teaming up, Barry said, I am very much the C in the S&C coach. So it was, you know, we'd probably call this putting the C back in strength and conditioning. So what does that actually look like? Is it just going out and running? Is it doing bike sessions? Or do we need to be more, like, thinking more long-term in terms of integrating the overall sport? Yeah, 100%. I think very much when people think strength and conditioning the strength is in all caps and then conditioning is just as an aside so it's good to see someone just purely focusing on that which is such an important part of the sport and not just rugby any sport really so it's good to see it, someone looking at it and trying to talk a little bit at the gym is not really how we approach different things is it yeah no just brilliant like you know touched on numerous things like you know work for players who are injured off feet work tying in with your your technical and tactical coaches touched on some gps and had had a brief discussion around concussion and even some advice for, for young S&C coaches towards the end as well. So, so loads for people to get from it. Yeah, definitely. Loads to, uh, loads to dive into there. So we'll, we'll kick it off without any further ado. Hope you enjoy this week's episode. Barry, we've met a couple of times in the past through various points of education, whether it be college, the S&C sort we did there in Southside Fitness in Dublin, I think it was where it was based. Do you want to give us, instead of me trying to attempt it in bitty parts, do you want to give us a bit of an overview of yourself, how you came to be at Connacht Rugby and a bit of a journey you took there? And a little bit of a, not a full about term, but a little bit of a diversion to the left there at one stage. Um, so yeah, myself and John met back in, fuck man, 09 was it? 09, yeah. Yeah, 09 we started um, and we did PE together in college. Uh, I did maths with that as well. So I was down there for four years, um, came home the summer of the fourth year and decided not to teach, uh, go making stints in a factory for three odd years. So did that, um, probably was about a year and a half into that when I realised the monotony was, wasn't for me. So I, um, I started to look into a bit of further education and I kind of always had to grow for the, the sports side of things and probably the preliminary reason I got into PE in the first place. Um, so I started looking at the Masters um, and I came across the one in, in UL, so the sports performance. Um, so I applied the, that year, got rejected first time around. Brilliant, go back to the drawing board. Um, so looked at the CV and I just, I was probably naive in, in going for the first place. You know, I fuck all education in that regard. Um, so I, I bulked out the degree, went off and did the CSCS, um, got experience with a couple of teams and then reapplied next year and, and luckily got picked up that time. Uh, so then as part of that then there was I think 50 hours of placement we had to do towards the back end so um, another mate of ours Gary McGrath you'd probably know him John yeah so he's he's with Canadian Athletics now currently <laughs> oh I was wondering where he was alright yeah so he's um he was in Connacht at that stage interning um, so I kind of used him to get to the Boston side and got the, the direct email um, and kind of plagued him for a little bit and eventually met for a coffee had a talk and went in and, and ended up doing a season with him interning um, and luckily after that season I got picked up for for that year so I, I landed there probably interning the year just after they won the Pro 12 so whether it's causation or correlation now we haven't won anything since but um, <laughs> I've been there since anyways. And you didn't play rugby growing up like hurling was and basketball you were kind of background growing up weren't they? Yeah so look I played everything growing up as every young lad does um, 
probably predominant ones are I'd say hurling basketball, a uh, bit of golf, and then obviously the a bit of soccer there. Um, rugby wise, I think I played about three weeks after the two thousand three World Cup. I think I I gave it a go for <laughs> that long. <laughs> Had these aspirations of being a an out half of that stage, and realized they'd no boot in me, so uh, it was pretty sharp to pack it in. Um, and then I guess a, a bit of tag would be probably the height of it. Then after that, but uh, yeah, it was it was a new land for me. Uh, getting into that environment, um, and probably very different athletes to. I guess the the path they took growing up to the path I would have you know taken playing hurling along the way or, or basketball um and I guess the structure of the the training they would have done in comparison. Did you put a lot of effort at the start then into learning a bit more about rugby or like was it kind of not so much templates but general principles in Connacht that you were just trying to base your work off before you said okay I need to start learning a little bit more about this myself so I can just reorganize these principles in my head a little bit more or how how do you approach that? Like I'm still learning the game, John. I'm a, I'm a guy head through and through. So <laughs> the whistle goes in the middle of a rookie. You're like oh, I have no idea what happened there. What's going on here, lads? <laughs> um, so no, like it, it's it's continual learning experience for me, um, and that can be, you know, down to I guess you know rules starting off is, is first and foremost demand starting off, and then you get into the the bit more intri- you know the the subtleties of a, ta- a tackle technique or you know the perfect jacket and what that looks like. Um, so it's it's always you know always a learning experience for me um i guess when i arrived there initially my my thought process or for me was whatever job i had you know do it to the best um not maybe to get distracted with other strands that weren't in, in control or or i had aspirations to go down the line you know whatever i had on my plate you know I, I made sure that was squared off first and foremost um and then that opened up i guess other avenues and you know when you show proficiency in that you you start getting responsibilities elsewhere which is um you know, I think when you land in an environment like that, you can get carried away with yourself and kind of, oh, that looks nice over there. I'll, I'll pop over here and give your work half done here. So it's um. And you came from the sports performance masters, and you will. I think you're actually the fourth person we've had on now. Um, you're in the same class as Stephen Casey. We had him on just before Christmas. There, what were some of the big things you took from that? Because obviously, on the PE end, it's not a wasn't then anyway a hugely science or performance based course it was very much around group management working with people and delivering stuff that way it was probably quite different then when you went like people would often link the two together saying oh PE sports performance they must be related I'd say you noticed quite a few differences in between the two yeah like I I guess that was primarily why I did that course in the first place you know I, I love sports and it was probably it was it was probably stupid in a way looking back, and I probably got to the end of first year, and I wanted to go over to sports science then. But you would have probably disowned me at that stage if I if I took that route there, <laughs> or um, or like just chatting to the old lad, and he was like, you know, finish off the degree, you know, it's it's a good degree to get, and I guess the maths as well with it, you know, it always kind of stood to me. Um, but definitely, I I remember even my my application towards it. We had a in our undergrad an anatomy module there. So that mean physiology, yeah. And I'm pretty sure I bloody tanked that now. I think it, it coincided probably with second year for me as well, which was probably one of my um more social years. But um, <laughs> to put it politely, um, so yeah, when I got into the masters, I I guess I had a, a lot more desire to learn as well. Um, and like right now, I, I guess physiology would be probably you know one of the things I, I really enjoy going after or, or looking at. Um, and maybe some of the other things that I I liked in the first place when I got into you know gym going or gym lifting or whatever you want to say as a young lad doing tin by tins to beat the bandwagon um you know it's it's breaking it down i guess to that physiological component and you know what are you looking for and that's where i guess i'm 
I'm becoming a bit more educated on. Still so far off. It's always learning, but um, yeah, I guess a, a slight change of thought process. And um, just when we were planning for this, I was kind of sending you on a few bits to chat around stuff, and you, I'm even thinking it it might be the the title of today, but you're very much the C in the S and C when it comes to Connacht. Will you just give us a, a brief explanation of well, what does that actually mean? So many people think of SNCs. Your main role is in the gym. You're getting people strong. You're getting more powerful, more explosive. And often the C is, is kind of an aside to all of that. But that being one of your primary roles, what kind of, yeah, first of all, what is that? And then what does that look like in terms of your day to day? Yeah, so I guess my, my journey and my, my responsibilities of like, it's probably always evolving inside in there. Um, so when I started off, first and foremost, you know, you're, you're interning, you're doing a bit of the bitch work, which is, you know, you got to do it, fair enough. <laughs> um, you do that good enough, you get handed other things. So um, took over like GPS then for a while, the kind of sports science side of, side of life, um, whether that be, you know, data interpretation, collecting, analyzing, et cetera. Um, and I guess even towards the back end of that first year intern, I, I was starting to get some, some little handouts, I guess you call them, with the offy condition. Uh, so we had Tristan Shark there was at the time. Um, so he he'd you know we'd have a few recon guys and he'd go look Barry, grab these two guys for some off conditioning. Um, and early doors you know it's it's a bit of trial and error but you start to get you know okay I've applied this stimulus I've gotten this response I've checked in with him the next day, right I might have gone too hard there or I could have gone harder or you know what was my actual intended purpose of that session you know rather than burying a guy, which you know I think. Conditioning wise, the easiest thing to do is to make someone tired. Um, it's it's probably the easiest thing we could do in our role. Um, so probably worked my way then truly off it. Um, did that for you know guts of a year, and then started transitioning to the the on field stuff. You know, so if we if we had a week's break in the middle of a season, you know, I'd I'd start divvying out the runs for the boys to do while they were away, and then that progresses into the off season and planning, and then you know you're you're starting to to shape how the preseason goes from a condition standpoint and you know you're you're starting to liaise them with certain other members of the uh, the organization um and how conditioning is going to fit in and how the coaches is going to either supplement or you know um tie in with you in, in that regard um and then i guess in the last uh about six months i've probably stepped into the, the recon side of things um so handling that more the, the s side of it then as well like so the, the strength side of that um, we've had a, a young graduate come in with us, Tom Brady. Um, so he's been fantastic. He's he's taken the, the GPS side of things and he's run with that and he's he's doing great things with it. Um, and definitely taking a, a positive direction. Um, and it was probably for my end, you know, it was it was getting a bit stale looking at a, a computer screen after, after three or four years of, of doing it. Um. So yeah, just it was it was good to to get that shake up. Um. And I think where I'm at currently now, you know, I'm I'm really looking forward to, to delving in because there's there's so many directions I can go rather than being. You know, I don't want to say pigeonhole, but you know, the the view is going out the way rather than in the way. You know, I can I can zoom out that bit more. We'll touch on the GPS in a second, but you mentioned their off feet conditioning. Can you just give us an idea of what that is and and why it might be important for the group, some players, whatever? Yeah, so I guess look in in a recon setting or an RTP, I don't know, a rehab, whatever. rehab return to play, yeah, 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 rehab we'll go with. Um, you know, you you've got a guy. It could be either upper or lower body that can't run or say he's a, a banged up shoulder, you know, can't run. Um, personally, I, I love upper body injuries when doing off conditioning. It's so much easier. <laughs> it's just that bit easier. Or vice versa, I should say. Sorry, no. 
hate upper body injuries <laughs> because then they're, they're stuck on a bike for all that time and they um they don't like you by the end of it put it that way but you you can get inventive and creative and i guess that's that's a side of it as well that was great learning for me the you know i always think of a session from a player's perspective and i don't want to um the easiest thing would be go right 30 on 30 off on a bike eight rest two minutes do it three times monday to friday there you go we'll progress it by x amount of watts each day like that that would drive me berserk so for me variation is a huge thing for players and even that's filtered probably outside of the the off-feed conditioning side of things um but the off-feed yeah it's um it can be used i guess as a supplementary uh stimulus as well for for in-season guys uh it's it's pretty low cost because mostly concentric in nature you know it's there's no repetitive impacts on the ground especially if you've got like a 120 kg prop you know that you, you just don't want to run fucking laps with um the off-feed is, is a, vi- a viable option there um and even i guess in pre-season we we can use it in our um I don't know what the PC term for this club is now, but you know the the fat club or whatever the. I I think most of the I don't know, weight management group to be nice, but yeah. Whatever that PC side of things is these days, um, yeah, it it, it can be used there, um, and even just as as quick little hitouts or high bursts, you know, we we probably utilised it quite well, um, last preseason. Uh, as a kind of anaerobic stimulus uh, for two weeks only because you know you look at some of the stuff from the likes of Jan Ulbricht, uh he's that Dutch swim coach but he talked about how, how easy it is to develop uh, the anaerobic system um, but also like how how easy it is to go over the edge as well with it so we literally before our, our pre-season games within the Aviva we had two Friday sessions that were 15 minutes long and the boys rattled through them um, very kind of high intensity high output um, looking in on it it looked like Mekon but there was a slight bit more thought into it I guess and the, the layout of it but um, for us that was a really easy high expenditure but low risk setting to put the guys in um, and whether it be from that mental standpoint or the actual energy development side of things um, it, it, it stood pretty well to them anyways the feedback was, was good now Is that the end of pre-season you're doing that or is it kind of when you have a break at some stage in the middle? That was actually, we, we'd done probably four to five weeks on, on pitch at that stage. Um, and like l- last year was, was kind of a funny one uh, with everything that happened. And we were still training while everything was locked down from distance. So the chat was that we, we could have as little as three or four weeks for things to, to kick off again. And obviously hindsight is great now knowing that that was never going to be a possibility. But, <laughs> you know, we had to keep guys prepped for, for what we didn't know then, but we had to keep them prepped. Um so obviously we did the came back and we were structured for four to five weeks training and that was in pods to begin with so you had like seven players and then seven became 14 players and then 14 joined up another 14 uh, so it was kind of like setting up a bubble or the infancy stages of the bubble for covid uh, so then we had like maybe two to three weeks then of complete team training leading into i don't know if you remember the aviva last summer the the provinces would have played each other over two weekends back end of august yep. so about two Two weeks out from that, maybe a week out from that, we we did them two sessions on the Friday. Um, and literally it was like we we trained, give the boys an hour off, and then they were allocated a 15-minute slot, rocked into the gym. And, uh, yeah. That's kind of based on having a decent aerobic base beforehand that wouldn't replace exactly, that. Yeah. And, and you're only going to get so much out of that for those two weeks if you extend that to three to four. You're probably carrying or risking way more fatigue than the than the physiological benefits. I'm I'm guessing. Oh, one hundred percent. 
And I guess because we had no idea what was going to happen after them two games either. It was we were nearly able to taper for them two games. It was almost like a peaking style approach we took. Um, yeah. So it, it it was it was great to be able to execute that I guess with a team. But obviously this this year coming and we have our our new our new competition in place that we we probably have to take a slightly different tact and look at the season as a whole that we're not going to come out of the the traps for the first three games and then fall off a cliff for the rest of it. So it's um it's going to be good getting back into it, I guess the somewhat normal preseason. Just briefly there to bring it back to some of the the start of the off feet work and you say you're bringing in some variation for the players mentality as much as nothing else how difficult is it sometimes to balance variation with still making sure you're meeting the intended physiological outcomes how, how kind of carefully you have to tread that line it depends how how actual deep you want to drill down into this now and if, if, we're, if we're talking about you know setting let's say 55 meters over 10 seconds to get an intended output if you're saying something as simple as uh, three, two, one, go. So if if that person is going on one and you're not picking them up in that, sure isn't that, you know, 11 seconds to do 55 seconds. So it depends how, how far you want to drill down to it. So what I would say is if, if you had a pass in midway through that run, is that going to be an issue? No. Or even tempo runs, if we do them, we'll often do them with the start the rep with a kick receipt. So the boys will actually have a bit of skill. So they'll feel the high ball and then they'll get into their tempo run. Because if you do a standard tempo run session of like 2,000 meters of literally 100, 200 repeats, like it's, if you've done them, they're, they're boring as fuck. Um, and you, you can only do them so long before A, you get kicked back and like B, it loses its, its, its benefit or its, its um, intended purpose. So yeah, anytime I can introduce a, a ball or a bag, I, I will. And like... I'm not a tackle coach or a defense coach or anything like so, but I can hold a bag. Um, and by now, I've, I've started to learn some of the big blocks of, you know, a good tackle. So whether it be, you know, your body in front and leg drive, and I can start encouraging a given player with them little cues now. The little the little subtleties, yeah, I mightn't have, but, you know, bringing a ball, bringing a bag, bringing something for the player just to break up the monotony of it all. That would be my kind of outlook of it. Um, I suppose I, just with, uh, with that there, Say we're off the back of a very unusual 12 months, obviously, for uh, fitness and uh, keeping players, you know, going. So you've had your experiences, you know, with a a very controlled group, you know, uh, a very dedicated, devoted group, their job, professional athletes. But I suppose if we keep in mind the uh, listeners that that we have uh, here would be coaches um, who are over, you know, your amateur teams uh, around the country. is there any kind of, I suppose you've kind of mentioned there a few maybe issues with, you know, tempos or, uh, you know, that they get boring and coaches definitely at a club level will look at that and go, that's a very long time for us to be giving up for, you know, for, for, for fitness. Um, is there any kind of like go-to bits of advice you would have for any coaches uh, or SNC coaches that are dealing with club teams? on that um or like how to actually build up their their fitness space appropriately um with people who may or may not have actually ran over the last couple of months um like normally i know you you say you could be going to proper pre-season but like if i take um even uh, my own club that i'm working with and a good few clubs around them a lot of guys actually haven't ran since they did like a random mini pre-season there around december at the end of the uh, one of the lockdowns um so you know do you treat it 
kind of just like a, a pre-season where, you know, you normally go into it? Or do you kind of think that people should maybe start at a lower level and work up? Or, yeah, just what are your kind of views there for keeping in mind just the club, the club, um, the amateur club? Yeah, look, I, I guess looking in from the outside, um, first off, you, you have to have a good relationship with the coach. Um, and for two reasons here, you, you've got to dial down their expectations a little bit from what they can do because obviously you've got some I don't know what team you're working but if, if it's an old school guy coach he's been he's been wound up for a year waiting to run these guys you know or train these guys that he can lose the, the run of himself a little bit um, so first of all you've got to be able to trust that if he says it's going to be a moderate or light session that it is um, and that if the result of the weekend isn't as planned that it doesn't dictate necessarily you know that the boys have to, to run and run hard because you know, from my experience, when he was playing the game and being part of setups, you know, there there can be that emotional kind of switch with them guys. Um, from our own end as well, then yeah, you you've got to recognise that most of the running, if they did do it, was probably on a road and probably five k loops, because God knows we fucking love them. Um, so the the elements of like change of direction, um, and even moving faster than whatever I don't know four meters per second like it's it's completely different i guess the coach looking in on it or the manager sees locomotion and that the boys have been doing that but it's it's completely different and it's, it's completely different stimulus to, to what they're used to now i'd say the only saving grace for for club guys is they're probably not as um well some of them i know there's there's a lot of like very quality amateurs that have put some of our pros to shame but um you know, they're, they're not as specified or they're not as fine-tuned as, as some of our guys. So, like, I know if, if we got some of our guys to run a 5K, they would break, probably. And that's to be expected, you know, that they haven't trained like that and they haven't been intended to train like that. So, I guess the fact that you've got an athlete that has a bit more variation to their background that might actually be playing a bit of squash on a Tuesday or something um, and then comes out and plays a bit of gardening on a Thursday, it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing. They're probably that bit more adaptable to uh, what you can throw at them. But yeah, obviously, undercut yourself if you're guessing yourself at all. If you ask the questions this too much, it might be just to start off. Um, and yeah, I'd say probably the, the overlooked thing is to actually liaise with the manager like, and have, have a good relationship there that you can, you can either bounce ideas off him or if he does want to go hard on a given day, you go, right, I'm going to dial back my input then on the, the two days before that. Yeah, I think one thing that rugby coaches, I suppose, at the amateur level, not don't understand, but they kind of underestimate it with themselves, is like, the level of intensity the kind of small-sided games or kind of playing drills have in rugby compared to like any other sport there's so much more output there's so much more stress so as a conditioning coach you're nearly trying to promote the kind of lower intensity stuff with your tempo runs and from a coach's point of view it's like oh Shane's not running them nearly enough or they don't seem to be working that hard when that's the side if they don't build up that aerobic base they're they're going to die and even those drills let alone a game yeah and again for me it's it's when you go small-sided games the injury risk is huge um and like a, lo- a lot of our issues is um the reaction side of it as well it's not just like a change of direction so we obviously will have guys you know guys this off season have 10 runs to complete before they come in Um, the expectation has been set out to them guys that sh- this is necessary work if you come back and you don't do them there's a high risk of you getting injured because we we want to we want to roll straight into to training uh with the ball in hand like years gone by or you know we've, we've probably only built this over the last two or three years that guys are in, in shape to actually train when they come back not to condition which is a subtle but it's it's a big difference because if you have to get two and a half three weeks of just like your 
like we'd use hit running there probably the, the 30 15 prescription side of things um traditionally and so if, if we use that for three three weeks you know we're, we're missing out in three weeks of ball in hand time or you know actual junior and rugby which is um it's wasted time and on a, a pre-season as short as it is you know it's we're not a southern hemisphere team you know we need to utilize everything that we can does contact and exposing players to contact play a role in condition like do you have to be conditioned for that through specific means or more general means or, or that combination of both yeah so look conditioning um i think we, we think about it probably as that cardiovascular side of things but as yeah. you said like you're, you're you're conditioning athletes to tolerate speed exposures you know certain movement patterns you know execution of skills under fatigue and obviously the contact piece is there as well um so we would work with the rugby coaches, I guess, to, to shape drills in such a way that, you know, you're going from whether it be the speed into the collision or the distance or if there's padding used or, you know, tackle pads or boys are wearing suits or shields. Um, and I guess it's it's just taking a layer away each week or something or adding an increased distance or an increased speed into the object because you obviously have to build that tolerance. And that was probably one of the big ones from uh, COVID. We, we broke after our South Africa trip that time, which was... I want to say start of April and we weren't back in then until like June, July. So guys had no contact exposures. Then a couple of guys had a sausage bag out the back that they were making very good friends with at times. But, um, you know, so that is definitely a side of things. And I know one of the, the questions you sent through about, the, and you're probably going to branch into this as every good, uh, post will about the concussion side of things here. <laughs> He's teeing it up. Um, so yeah, the, the contact side of things is, is definitely a necessity and a requirement uh, to build it up gradually and, and methodically, I guess. And like, yeah, just from what you're saying there, ensuring that the players are conditioned or match ready, do you have like a few key markers? Are you playing games and training? Because obviously you don't always go out and play the full match and be like, okay, yeah, fair enough, because you're never 100% certain that it's, actually mimicking real match intensities and sometimes you do your you know your six or whatever block of training six weeks sorry and you're going out to your first game and like even working with teams and the manager's like oh are they ready for this game oh they are yeah they're definitely ready and the back here you're like oh i hope they are do you have some kind of key things there like okay in a combination of this general area in some form of conditioning test this number of exposures at whatever pace plus this amount of contacts or this amount of time spent contacting over the previous few weeks are you working off stuff like that is it that exact and you still just a little bit yeah i really hope they're ready i ah, look you're, you're always going to be <laughs> that nervousness about things as well like you know because we're humans no one knows what's happening and you know it's, it's such an unpredictable game at times that obviously you want to mitigate as much as you can the the soft tissue or the, the non-contact injuries but unfortunately with the nature of the game there is going to be them contact injuries um and it's it's probably minimizing the uh the damage that comes out of those um but back to your question i guess about you know standards we'd have so we would have for positions you know a, a given 13 15 score where we we'd see our guys at and we probably categorize our guys into three uh three levels you can call them you know flying so boys that are fit enough and that's one thing as well like there is certain players that are fit enough and don't actually need to get fitter because with a higher base it's going to be harder to get a, a um and it's going to be riskier to get a, an improvement on a lot of things like that um and it could be time spent be better elsewhere you know so if, if you've got a like we've we've a few whippets of scrum halves 
um you know what conditioning is going to be good for them like why not work on you know a box kick if if that's where their need is or it's time you know spent recovering better you know or you know their nutrition they could be better prepared in other areas um so they'd be that flying group and then you've got your your fit group with a question mark they kind of sit in the, the middle and then you've got your what we would deem as failing i guess would be the them guys um and that's where i guess stuff like the off conditioning or um it's not always the are we calling them fat are we allowed to say that yeah. well, you call them whatever you want we're not going right. to judge it's it's not always the fat guys that are unfit and it's not always the the fit guys that are or whatever the other variation of that is you know you can be fat and fit and you can be unfit and fat and there's there's four quadrants really there there's there's fit for purpose like yeah exactly um you know better absorption qualities i think is what you're getting at there john is it yeah well well like um, beside your average general person or pro- probably is like people say oh he's a bit fat isn't he but realistically for for the role he plays he's probably actually aerobically possibly fitter than me because of the level of training they do he's definitely stronger and he's a hundred percent way better at scrummaging and lifting in a line out so you know that is fit for the purpose of of his role i feel like and look obviously you'd want to have mass that, that can produce something rather than just stand there that's the, the long-term goal, but um, yeah, as you said, like we have standards for our positions and there is obviously expectations and people will deviate and there'll be outliers either direction on those. Um, so yeah, that, that failing group, then you can either supplement them with extra conditioning if needs be, and that can be in the form of on or off feet, depending on what they do. Um, but also you got to remember that, look back historically, uh, we've had guys that have, you know, hit like a 22 and a, a 30-15, and then they've come back after six weeks of training and they've hit like a 20, 20.5 and you're like, you know, a 0.5 is a big difference. And then you have a chat and you realize that he got off a plane about seven hours earlier from America. Like, so you, you, you can take it with a pinch of salt as well, like a test. Um, the results you're getting mightn't be a true reflection of where they're at. Um, so I think this is where it helps to know your players as well. Yeah, and just just that like doing well in a fitness test doesn't automatically lead to a good performance on the pitch. There are you know other variables to tie in. Oh, one hundred percent. And like you're gonna probably touch on GPS at some stage, but when when guys look for numbers, like my first question back to them is, you know, how effective are you? You know, it's it's not about your HMLD score there. Like you know, what was your pass actually like? You know, tackles completed, gain line made, stuff like that. Because oftentimes it's an inverse correlation. The guys that run the least are the best performers and vice versa we've had players in the past that were out of position but they cover 8k game and if you're someone looking in and going jesus more distance is better you're picking them every day of the week you know but the fact that he was out of position he was just he was covering his arse for 80 minutes you know yeah especially with the older players like there's obviously you can see their physical numbers decline 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 but like if their output is getting better and they just know the game a little bit better they're playing smarter that's in a way what you want to see rather than them just somehow physically excelling, excelling, excelling. 100%, yeah. And look, it's it's not a... Young guys do come in with this enthusiasm, but it's, it's not always probably directed in the right place. They probably try to do too much. And again, it's it's doing your role to the best of your ability before looking outside the box, you know, because you are a part of a collective and the guy on your, your left-hand side has to be able to trust you and that you're going to execute and what you're, you're, you're due to do. Obviously testing has its flaws and you mentioned 3015 and stuff there and you're obviously going to utilize a few tests throughout the pre-season see did they respond to this train what shape are they back coming in how, how ready are they to train not just to condition but are you testing much throughout the season 
or is it in some way built into various sessions that you do like true okay this is this is a typical session we might do want to make sure you're hitting this many meters per minute but also have an idea as to where your heart rate is and how quickly it's coming down afterwards or do you do a few of the typical tests at various stages through the season probably not to the extent that we'd like to um so first off we, we don't use heart rate we've uh, i think maybe four straps to, to cover four bikes inside which is is grand but if you're trying to get through a squad of 44 or 45 in the first day um, and trying to estimate everyone's max heart rate because guess what 220 minus your age doesn't work <laughs> like, like my my old ass is still getting above 200 now um so the issue is um i guess having the data in the first place to be able to compare off um, and one of the big issues we find with our current location this is not to say that it can't be done because um if you look at some of the work by uh, Tanit scott he's, he's an australian there and he, he talks about like submaximal monitoring of the heart rate um and I had a few chats with him uh, and they would do it down uh, down australia with i think a four minute continuous kind of at 60 percent of their 30 15 score and they'd look at their heart rate response off that in you know a minute after two minutes after and this kind of stuff um premise beautiful looks really good i don't know if you've ever been, ever been to the west of ireland though the um the weather and the surface is so changeable <laughs> like it's it is mental so like there's no point us going we're going to take data we got in the summer on the dry pitch on a sunny day and then try and interpret it on a bog <laughs> at times <laughs> the side pitch can turn into um so yeah it's it's i guess you've got to be able to repeat the test you're doing and right now we, we probably don't have the the setup or the structure we, we haven't maybe found a way in that regard to to go after um but in other facets then you know we we jump every every two or two times a week i should say um as a profiling metric um and there's there's some really comprehensive stuff you can get off the, the jump testing and you know strength testing within the gym as you said build it in whether it be like finish the last set with a, an amrap or you know build up to a 3rm or something like that or even the speed velocity side of things is is great that's that vbt side yeah, that's what I was going to say. Do you use the velocity sometimes in the gym? Yeah, like we've all three options there for us. Like, I guess rarely we'd ever go after one or M's because, you know, it's great to be able to, to shift. Yeah, there is a certain risk to it, but it's, it's great to be able to shift, you know, 95, 100% of a, a given weight. But our, our sport, or a lot of times, it isn't dependent on being able to shift that maximal number. It's, it's being able to shift a given percentage of that quite fast. So yeah, you've got to remember that side of things, um, and obviously, look, it's it's going to differ between positions. I guess the closer you are to the 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 front of the scrum, the more force dominant you are, and then when you you move out towards you know your your batteries, it becomes a bit more velocity dominant. But each each player will have their characteristic, you know, force or velocity dominant. Um, and you mentioned earlier, particularly when Damien asked, Damien is just for anyone listening, Damien's hopped off. He'd about twenty percent battery, and he's sitting on a boat in that loan, so we're not sure he'll <laughs> hop back in or not yet. But you mentioned it's key to have that relationship with the manager or with the more technical, tactical coaches. How closely are you working with those in terms of, okay, this I've noticed this game here, they're getting a good condition and hit off it. Instead of me going doing a block of 16 tempos, they could probably get as much or, or very similar from that game. I'll go on and ask the coach and he's like, oh no, I really want to work on this thing today. Are you communicating to them? constantly around could you change this a little bit or sometimes you have to step back a little bit this is really specific to the style of gameplay he wants to do and i just have to 
not be involved in this let them push what they need to push and then see can we supplement that preferably sometimes through a modification of a game but sometimes it might need to be something more just as we call it dry conditioning yeah look um i guess it's it's going to be slightly different this year where we're obviously going with that rugby ball in hand from the offset um and we've a new a new shape to our coaching staff as well there's been some departures and some new additions so with that comes you know new philosophies and new tax and new uh new drills new implementation of of trends um so it's it's working with them i guess you know you're you're there probably to supplement more than to lead um and then i guess the additional work you can do is is through that feedback within session whether it be you know okay we haven't hit what we wanted in the eight minutes of this block you know roll it out to 10 we we have free reign there um or it might be a manipulation of uh, a transition within a an attack and defense block that you know okay we need to get a few extra meters per minute here let's put a ball down the far side of the pitch and you know your your next play is going to start from there so coaches are mic'd up to the the coaching staff um and you can feedback within or between drills um and i guess your traditional preseason will be where it's it's predominantly snc led to coach supplemented to probably a 50 50 and then you know you know coach led and snc supplemented uh so we're, we're probably trying to book that trend a little bit by having our guys coming back within good shape so as i said like they will have 10 runs done with that kind of aerobic um premises at the forefront um and we have obviously included things that we can you know aggressive changes direction towards the back end of them 10 runs so when they come back minus the reaction components but they're actually able to do, you know, the, the high degree or high level of turns, accelerations, decels within them, small set of games that it brings. Obviously, there's going to be the reaction component that's missing and that'll be layered in, I guess, as we, as we go through the first couple of weeks. That reaction component is huge. It's something like, no matter how much you try and implement some form of turning, change direction, accelerating, decelerating, it's the speed you have to do it with and the potential that, you know, if, if I know I have to run 10 metres, turn and come back, I will predominantly have my body set up in the right position to turn if i have my body ready to turn left and the fella in front of me turns right i'm like oh i have to turn everything in a completely different direction from a different starting point i don't think a lot of people fully appreciate the load that places on the body and the effort that places on numerous like giants and muscles throughout to cope with that and then if you put that in 10 15 20 times in a in a 10 or 15 minute block the fatigue from that and the preparation the condition of that is far more than I think people would have realised up to now or up to a few years ago oh 100% and you just you were saying like 10 or 15 times in a 10 minute block man that can be 3 minute blocks with some of the small set of games that, that people play it can be outrageous some of the the amount of access these says that the guys are after and it's it's not that they'll register on a GPS you know if, if you're looking at ones that are greater than 3 metres per second per second you might only get 2 or 3 of them but it's it's possibly some of them smaller ones as you said if someone steps you and you have to to shift side to side it mightn't register on your back but it's it is a loading that has to be appreciated it's also an important point to consider in terms of both you know us looking at from an snc lens you also want players to be really good at that for the actual playing of the sport so preparing them for stuff like that whether it be balling you know with a ball in hand and you're trying to sidestep someone or you're preparing for someone coming at you with a ball in hand it's I would say ability to manipulate your body to react to that is probably reasonably highly correlated with success in games or certainly with successful tackles made, which is, you know, one of the, 
that's where that's where we're eventually going. Ah, yeah, like you you got you got to build towards that. I guess what we're doing is we're, we're trying to get a few steps ahead of the curve by the time we land back. That you know, rather than hitting that evasion style drill within week four or five, you know, that we're able to bring it in in some shape or form week two, week three, and and go from there. So then your your players have got two extra weeks of that higher intensity kind of style training. Um, I, I know Shane was saying we were chatting a couple of weeks ago. Shane's working with rugby team and saying just without giving away any secrets the intensity they play an awful lot of their in games at he's like John they're getting an awful lot of a physical hit from this I'm just going to probably supplement that with a few more a few more tempo runs and stuff because if we can get a lot of the conditioning from the game well in a way it does our job for us but it's also far more specific to the sport they're playing um, Shane you, you can probably hop in and explain that better than me yeah it's kind of in many ways it's the ideal scenario because the rugby coach is happy because they're getting to play as much rugby as he wants and you're happy because they're hitting their main metrics that you're looking at and then you're just kind of filling in the gaps as well so it's just in many cases it's just sitting back and watching and paying attention to the sessions you can see what they are doing and making sure that it's not just the four lads that happen to be kind of wearing the heart monitors that day that are doing these things and there's a few lads just sitting around the outskirts not doing it but would you kind of monitor liaise with the coaching staff to see what they're doing know the games and then say okay well i have a rough idea that this is going to give them all that this output this is then what I have to do off the back of that. Yeah, like we, we have done our, our drill databases in the past. Um, they won't be trying out the window completely, obviously, with this the, the new the coaching staff coming through. You know, it's um it's probably more so a feedback that historically we've done this or we've increased a rule or introduced a rule here where, you know, if, if you do get touched or if you touch, you know, it's out to the sideline, yada, yada, or dimensions, whatever. Like there's so many variables we can change. And it's probably more so the the education from us that we've we've done this in the past. It's changed this metric if we're looking at say whatever you want. Um, that sometimes we could have our our front five or all forwards playing a game in a certain dimensions, so a lot smaller sided. And then if we want our backs then playing a more you know open style game on the other half of the pitch, that um you know we're we're getting a bit more of that soft tissue loading from the, the posterior perspective I guess. Um, so it's it's probably I guess. It's more so the fact that I've probably been in this long enough that I have a tendency towards things already. I've probably failed enough times to to have some some insights, <laughs> um, and like it's it's never going to be a hundred percent science. It's probably half science, half art, really. Um, and I guess I I've had the luxury of you know trialing things out and seeing what's happened, um, good and bad, and going from there, um. So yeah, I, I kind of empathise in a way with other coaches out there, and it's, it's easy, I guess, for mine. You know, I've a GPS there as well to guide me as well. Um, or or certain guys that have heart monitors, you know, it's 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 very good. Like I know, I know Steve Casey. He's he's absolutely phenomenal with some of the stuff he puts out with the heart rate. Um, especially that that lower intensity loading that kind of gets neglected. As you said, you know, it could be in the form of a tempo run. Um, and you're probably getting two bites of the cherry there as well with some of the the preventative stuff as well. And then with preventative stuff for when you're doing return to play, is there ever any time where you try and include ball work? So say, for example, I don't know, for ex- if he's going to be cut out, he's out at a bad time of the season. Maybe it's kind of three, four weeks of rehab and the coach is very keen to not have him lose any skill or not have him lose that first step as such. Do you try and incorporate that into it or is your sole focus with return to play going to be, no, I need him conditioned first, then we can add balls in. So you have to do A before you can move on to B sort of approach. Uh, I think A and B can live together, to be honest. Um, it's just how you shape a drill. You know, just because 
Dan Baker or Martin Bichette said, you know, you've got to do three by eight at eighty five percent intensity or higher, you know, to get a given adaption doesn't mean that you can't you know, at a turn, at a down up, at a bag hit, you know, there's such an energy cost from them. And if you're just looking at a number on GPS, you know, you're not gonna see them unless you go obviously accelerometer side of things, but that's another story itself. Um but you gotta appreciate the cost of, of other things. Um and I I guess after a while you, you build up um a bit of an appreciation of how much each of those takes from a toll perspective. Um so if I do start a drill off with a bag hit that okay I'm gonna decrease the running distance by let's say ten percent. I'm pulling that out of the air, but you you can gauge better after a while. Um and as I said, like we go to things like surface there, it can change quite a lot during the air with us. Um if it's a heavy ground, you know, okay, I'm I'm not gonna run this guy, you know, excessive long distance or loads of turns or you know, you you do get appreciation of the elements I guess around that. And then even chats with the player himself, you know, right. He's had a bad sleep last night, you know, newborn. And I guess that's more along the, the monitoring side of things as well, obviously. But, um, yeah, I don't think you should be stuck to a, a given program or schedule. You know, there, there's always wiggle room around it. Um, and I think definitely introduce a ball early. Try and bring it back to the sport as quick as you can. Because you've got an opportunity to nearly overindulge them in skill development in that regard. So they should come back a better player. It's it's the hard and fast. And I know a lot of return to play protocols are, you know, 90% of the, the uninjured limb would be a criteria. But, you know, that doesn't mean that it should be 90% skill coming back either. It should be, you know, why not more? So things I do within sessions, I could have guys juggling in between reps. I've I've done mats on the fly with them. My nerdy background, I've, I've had a board where they'll come out to do a turn and there'll be a quadratic equation on the floor there <laughs> and now in multiplication sometimes you got to dial them down to like very simple plus with some of the guys <laughs> because there, there's a, a wide range of iqs inside um but like it, it's just about you know grand running brings its own cost but there's other costs you can do like the mental cost of certain things and if you chat to a guy afterwards a lot of them will just shut off during the conditioning they just turn off upstairs so I've I've done things where like they've got to remember a string of numbers so we can get out to 10 numbers and shit like that by the time they've done 10 reps and they'll feed that back and just, just random things like that. And look, maybe it's more so for my own sanity as well being out there, you know, five days a week running guys. But um, I definitely think if if you can bring it back to the game as quick as possible, do it. That's a great point about your own sanity. It's something sometimes when I'm like doing a blocker run, I find it very hard because you know you're you're a bit of a hype man there, but at the same time you're like, oh, how fully engaged am I in this one? We just have to get through the runs. But with something like that, I think it's a brilliant idea. You know, again, as much for your own engagement as it is for the players, but keeping them switched on cognitively because again, it's it's still one of the, the end points we're looking at. Yeah, like and look, if, if we're doing handling drills, you know, I'm doing it too, <laughs> so. I'm getting something there or, you know, I'm I'm keeping myself occupied in a way as well. Like, and even out of boredom, I'll hop in with a few runs as well. Like, and I probably got in the depths of winter last year where the hammies were hanging off me from doing three or four runs a day that I said, okay, maybe I'll, I'll periodize my own run here. But, um, yeah, look, it's, it can be, it can be a very rewarding, um, part of the job as well. Like, but as you said, John, you know, you just gotta look after your own sanity at times as well. Just to pull it back a bit to the, the monitor in there, and you find it, you know, obviously very useful to have GPS. But 
what are you actually looking at? Because I know so many players or teams who who get the GPS first. So I think it's a it's a fallacy in GA that okay, we look at total distance. We see this lad covered seven, this lad covered eight, this lad covered nine, this lad covered, oh, this lad covered ten. Must have played well. Total distance is probably not that relevant or useful. But what is relevant, and it'll obviously differ between sports, but in rugby, what, what are you looking at, whether it be live or after a game or at the end of a total week? So we, we wouldn't look at total distance. We, we look at probably running distance, so we exclude anything that's walking-based, and we'll, we'll have that as almost a loading. Um, it's not a performance metric. To be honest, none of our, our GPS metrics are performance metrics. Um, what I'll always direct the guy back is go to analysis, you know, ask them, what were your numbers like rather than, you know, checking Grant, you ran the most distance there from a HMLD perspective, but if if the, the forty two were doing the player ratings, you were only getting a four, you know, that kind of so um I'd say the main ones we track are, are HMLD because, you know, it's it's a composite metric and we can probably use it to an extent squad wide because it obviously includes, you know, your accelerations, decelerations and your higher speed running. What's HMLD there? Sorry, um high metabolic load distance. So if you go back to the papers, it's, and I'm pulling a figure out here, I think it's like 25.5 watts per kg. It's, it's an action above, beyond that, you get rewarded for basically. So what they've, they've come back with is it equates to a hard acceleration, a hard deceleration, and then any distance you cover over 5.5 meters per second. Um, so we've, we've fed that back to players and we've, we've tried to contextualize them. So, um, if you think of a launch called an aggressive bit of line speed from a defensive standpoint, um, we'll say to the players, you know, you're rewarded from a HMLD perspective with that action. Uh, or if we've like a, a, a kick chase or something, like a, a run like fuck, as we, we would have called it inside. Um, <laughs> very colourful. <laughs> um, you know, that's how we try and apply that. You get rewarded by doing an action. Um, we fed this back other ways. You know, you can do it like a total meters, or you can do it as an occurrence, so a HML effort. So when you do one of those, you get rewarded. Um, boys tend to like that. They like to compete on on something, but mostly what they like to compete on, and I think you can guess what it is, is max speed. <laughs> they yeah. boys just fucking love that. I don't know for what reason, whether it's vanity or what, or a style of vanity. Um, and then I guess from our background, in you know we're we're tracking things from a monitoring standpoint. You know, your high speed runner. They're, for us in particular being the number of sprint exposures and I guess this is the the kind of Goldilocks not too much not too little uh, from the preventative standpoint I think that's it's pretty common knowledge now but probably some of Shane Malone's work and in terms of like max speed exposures are you looking across the total week this is kind of the general window we want to fall into if it all comes from a game great if you only get two thirds of that in a game we have to supplement that in train in some way so we'd have um we'd have in-house totals what we what we do is a seven day rolling basically um, because our our week is never going to be Monday to, to Sunday. You know, yeah. we can have a Friday night game, we can have a Sunday afternoon game, and even this year, you know, I've branched out to a Monday. So what we do is an actual seven-day rolling, so it looks from today back seven days, tomorrow back seven days from then, and so on. Um, and we would have our totals there for most of the metrics where we'd like to live. Predominantly, the big ones we're looking at is probably that HMLD and uh, sprint exposures. Um, and then we have opportunities within the week to, to hit some of the sprint exposures. So probably the best time we can hit a guy with a sprint exposure is um, a sub that's played maybe 10 minutes and it's probably going to be the freshest he will be or the furthest away from the next game. So that's an opportunity there. Or then we have um, opportunities on a Tuesday or Wednesday based on the shape of the week uh, where we can hit them, you know, pre or post training 
and sometimes it'll be pre-training you know if, if guys have a good scatter of sprints in the tank you know you're not afraid of what's coming up in session that grand they can do a sprint here and they can do three or four within session they're, they're still going to be good um, and then you maybe have guys that you know they may or may not hit them session so you go right we'll hit them afterwards then um, and you know you can talk about oh they're going to be fatigued afterwards and they're not going to get their maximum speed but if we're getting guys above that 90% mark you know we've we've kind of ticked off the preventative side of things knowing that it's it's not going to obviously lead to speed development but it's it's minimizing injury just out of interest actually when it comes to like hitting max speed does that happen more in training or in matches like if you're doing something specific to speed or you know it's obviously going to be some bit position specific like so backs hit it in matches more often forwards hit it in training more often now that's your, your run of the mill training obviously when we um set out a 50 60 meter race a trainer for two backs you know you might hit it there but um from times gone by yeah forwards get it in training because obviously they're they're probably super maximal in that regard, whereas backs, and look again, it's it's dependent on the coach whether he blows up the whistle if someone makes a break, do you let that play continue? Yeah. If if you, if you do, fantastic. You know you, your back has got his speed exposure from that, but oftentimes and what what had happened historically was a guy make a break and then right, next rook, you know. So, I guess yeah, that that was probably a good learning from us that we need to let the play develop just a bit more. Grant, the ball was turned over, Bush, you know, how was our defensive reaction to that? Or, you know, did that back get that speed exposure that he could have gotten? Just you briefly mentioned it there, subs, like a fellow who plays maybe 10 minutes, it's a good time to, to hit him with some speed to work afterwards. How do you, like, manage that overall for subs? It's something I'm always, I'm assuming at the professional level it's not an issue, but at the amateur level, the condition for subs after a game, I I tend not to do it largely. To be honest, I, I try and warm up a little bit harder than is needed in game to try and get some little hit there. Particularly oh, if there's twenty minutes going, there's super subs on. I'm looking at the rest. I'm like, yeah, lads, your chances of coming on are slim enough. So we're going to get something here now. But I'm like, oh no, you're going to be so fired up now when you come on there. If I ever listen, sorry, lads. But uh, but after a game to actually condition players as you go down through the levels, I'm like, oh, I don't think the juice is worth the squeeze here because of the negative psychological elements. Like obviously, I see the the physical reasons for it. I assume you don't really have to factor that in too much at the professional level. Um. So look, it's I guess what's what's perfect world scenario and what's real world scenario. So. In times where we weren't able to charter flights, you know, and we had a, a flight out of Bristol Airport at 10.30, had you time to run a guy afterwards? Maybe not. So this is where, you know, the real world comes in. Um, or had two players in that given position gone down during the game and you're kind of looking at this guy and going, do I really need to run him here? Am I risking something when, you know, we're, we're going to be a bit light in that next week and he's definitely going to be playing. Um I'm not saying you should back away from ever conditioning a guy and you shouldn't condition out of fear, but it's, it's probably going right. You know what, he, he played 25. It was actually a pretty high-tempo game. We've got a short turnaround. It's the sixth day. It's probably not worth it. Um, so it's it's going to be very context-dependent. I guess a, a rule of thumb we'd use or we'd look at guys is um, that kind of 25, 30-minute mark. Um, and if guys haven't played that much, we'll have a chat in the dressing room. Um, and guys are, are very good for this, you know, I I literally say, do you want to hit it now? Or we have an opportunity maybe to go after it Monday as well, or maybe we go off feed as well after, you know, if, it, if it's a prop dish, you know, he might have had seven scrums when he came on, but obviously didn't run that much, you know, maybe, maybe it's better off, you know, stick him on a bike, 
it's it's just I guess it's context dependent. It's chat to the athlete, um, and then go from there. Uh, actually, just something popped into me on something you said a minute ago there. That seven day roll on average that you're looking at in terms of the HMLD and everything that way. Do you look at that, keep that reasonably constant, or is there an element of block load in every three to four weeks, or slowly raising and drop, or slowly raising and drop, or, or, or do you just have too many exposures to games to risk loading and going in fatigued? So you're, you're going to have certain stretch weeks, I guess, but a lot of what we do, or a lot of periodization, is probably done off the turnaround. So whether it be... A 10-day versus a 6-day. Yeah, exactly, and then it's you got to factor in things like travel and shit like that, so if we've play it over in Italy on a Sunday, um, come back maybe that night, maybe the Monday morning, um, and we have a Friday game at the sports ground then, or even a Friday game, worst case scenario, away again the, the week after. You know, it's going to be a low week straight off the bat. <laughs> you, you can't reach in that week. But that's not to say that the guys that get left behind on both of them trips can't push the boat out a bit more. And I guess that's where you, you look at the, the team as a whole, Grand, you can have your, your 25 guys that travel, and they're going to have a given loading. But if we have the opportunity to, to top up them remaining 20 guys, if they're all well and fit, you know, let's let's get them in an academy session on a Friday while the guys are traveling over. Um, and let's, you know, time's gone by, we would have given them guys some AIL exposure. But obviously last year there was, that was not an option. Um, so yeah, look, you, you can push with certain parts of the team in certain times. And other times you've got to be respectful. Obviously, if you've got a back row that's played eight games in a row, it's it's managing. You're you're not going to get much adaptation out of them there. You know, you've you've got to keep them fresh because we, we can get out to 13, 14 games in a row, week on, week off, uh, or week week after week. Um and with that brings its own problems. And if you get light in an area then as well, you know, it's it does become a bit a bit interesting. And then so for example, if you were say for the coaches there who wouldn't have the luxury of having GPS data. Would, if you were at rugby training, obviously, with the exception of weeks when you might have two matches or a midweek match, would you try to ex- include sprint exposure at least once a week, or would it be factored off um, uh, perceived exertion scale, or how would you kind of factor that in if you didn't have the GPS to to build your plan around, if that makes sense? Yeah, it's probably, I guess, observing what happened in the match, um, and it's it's going to be a bit of a coach's eye here. Um, you can... You can probably get a feel for the tempo of the game, what it was like. Um, and then when we're talking about our sprints, probably just keep an eye on the back three years and how many times did they make that break? How many kick chases was there? Stuff like that. It's it's a pretty crude metric here. Um, but also talk to the player. How many times did you open up out there today? You know, maybe once, twice. Grant, take it off. Um, with the short turnarounds, if... If it's going to be a week where you miss the sprint exposures, um, but as we said, like obviously post game as well on that that first Saturday, that could be an opportunity right there, even if it is a short turnaround. Um, and look, it, it's it's probably not going to be detrimental if you miss one week. Try not to back to back weeks. Um, I guess one of the the issues we had in my intern year was um, we noticed that after it happened, a, a guy hadn't sprinted for eight eight weeks. When you look back through the data, and it was it was a blindside by by us as um a department uh, and it, it's it's definitely been a learning from mine since and a lot of it was coming from what i said you know that the coach blowing up the whistle so um letting that play develop but uh yeah just just linking with players and even from the conditioning standpoint john as well like ask a player do you need this do you want it 
you mentioned sort of earlier about the speaking to the analysts do the analysts ever look to integrate some of the gps data and what they collect yeah um so we've we've had various stabs in the past and we probably never nailed it really um it is a work in progress for us um and we're, we're getting closer to there um and it probably is where i guess this industry is going as well you know the insights that you can gain that the average speed going into a tackle is going to be this so then you can start to to work backwards and say okay a guy's experiencing x amount of momentum going into that um versus obviously where the high speed exposure is happening in a game and pairing them up then with an action uh so we we have done iterations of it is it perfect to know can it get better yeah um are we, are we trying to develop it yeah definitely it's something I looked at a few years ago myself. I was trying to develop some form of player efficiency score, or player efficiency rating, and just you know X Y axis on, on one axis had the game actions that the stats lads collected. I was like, you know they sent me on an XML file. I was able to parse that down. On the other side, I had total distance, but also had meters per minute to see. And if I drew an A B line, were some lads falling above or below the line? So to see like are some lads covering huge distances, and you know we have six actions uh, and other lads like not covering huge distance but have 10 12 14 actions just see an overall it was like it wasn't something that every really planned to show players it was more for imagine but like you know just saying well done to the lad who covered 10 and a half k probably isn't that relevant because look at all of the other actions because they were looking at them in isolation i just you know it's obviously something that would have to be very specific to that team and the specific stats that they keep and the specific game actions they keep but it was always something i i should have looked to develop a bit more maybe but you've touched on it there as well. Like you, you've got to understand the metrics that are going to work with your population and your team, um, and that that integrate with your philosophy of how you play. Because if if we want to be, you know, if we want to be a high tempo team, is is collision load the best thing to look at, or is it more, you know, as you said, meters per minute maybe as a pace metric, or do we go into the analyst side of things and look at a ball and play time and try and drive that side of things. So it depends what type of team you are. You you play to your strengths, obviously. Try and mitigate your weaknesses, um, but also complement it in, in what you're feeding back to the guys. Um, and what I would say is, with anything you feed back to the guys, make sure that it's, it's actionable on their part. That if they can do something to affect it, that it will show. It's not just a byproduct of the game. Do you find there's much... Um shit house for lack of a better word with lads when they're messing around with the gps because i was listening i was only listening to a podcast the football podcast the other day and they were just saying stories about how lads would kind of if the red the coach blew it up for a break they'd, they'd sprint in to get their water just because they know right the sports science coach is going to be watching this and if i don't have a high output i know i've done absolutely nothing today if i don't have at least one he's gonna he's gonna be on me and he's gonna make me do my sprints and my conditioning yeah so this this is where i guess we talk about the how clean the data is coming in. Um, so if you are creating a drill database, you've got to ensure that it's it's only including actual pitch times, you said. So once that whistle goes, the drill is cut, that anyone that was doing conditioning on the side, that they're dropped, because obviously they're going to inflate numbers. You know, you're, you're going to have player X over there doing, I don't know, shuttles to beat the band for them three minutes because he's not going to get a run out in this session. Um, and then you look and you go, geez, he, he went great. But you look back historically as well, like, and you can't piece together that he was actually just doing. So if, if you are collecting that in that regard, it's got to be it's got to be clean. Um, but yeah, you, you hear some of the, the top speeds hit by guys are, you know, right back defenders going up to celebrate a goal in, in, in a Premier League game. Like, 
So again, with GPS, for me, it, it always goes back to the context. Um, and I think you, you've probably touched on it there, Shane, all right? Is there anything you can't currently monitor, monitor that you wish you were able to? Ooh, um, probably the heart rate side of things. And like, that's just literally, we don't have it. Um, and that's probably, it's probably greedy from my aspect. It's something I'd like to look into because I think you can, you can look at a, an input versus an output. So you can, when conditioning a guy, you can give him an input and see what output comes or vice versa. You can give him an output and see, see what the input is. So the internal versus the external. Um, so for me, heart rate would be definitely one that I'd, I'd like to get after a bit more. Um, probably accelerometer stuff as well as we, we probably don't utilize it enough um and this is just the reality of it our, our jerseys aren't tight enough to give us a um a correct reading on them the, the unit literally bounces around too much we don't actually have that problem in south dublin would you believe <laughs> everyone's jerseys are bed on <laughs> <laughs> yeah we need to go a few sizes smaller or something but like we have like collisions we've probably the highest collision load within the irfu out of the four provinces and it's it's not because of the way we play it's it's literally because the unit does bounce that much extra so it goes back to like collecting clean data there's no point us going after accelerometer stuff when we don't have the, the setup in place um we could probably look at trends and like kind of normalize stuff but if if you're looking to be actionable off it it's it's not really there as of uh as of now in terms of um and something we've chatted about a little bit before do many of the players use wearables and then try and feed some of that back to you and you're there in one way like i'm not sure how reliable this is but on the same time that's actually really interesting i hadn't thought of that having that impact on him yeah um so i think the whole wearables thing is it's going to be huge um it's, it's getting bigger it's probably going to even move to implantables within the next 10 20 years you know where we're probably looking at you know core temperature and fucking lactate readings on the fly and that that realistically is is where it's going obviously it's ethical issues and all that kind of crack but um we would have a few guys that wear you know whoops um i think one or two of the the aura ring um do i trust everything that comes back on us yes and no you know it's it's probably an algorithm based product that it's it's ever evolving ever learning and again it's it's going to look at all the data it collects and it's going to probably try and identify trends but what it's great for it's it's starting conversations you know, um, and what it can do as well, it, it can keep guys honest. So if you have this, I I'm, I'm, I'm don't know the ins and outs of it, but this recovery score that the guys get, they know that if they get their eight, nine hours of sleep, that it's probably going to give them a good recovery score. Fantastic. They've done something good, beneficial to the recovery process. Whether it's reflective of what they've done, I, I honestly don't care. But, you know, they've, they've actually gone and looked after themselves. And if it keeps them accountable to that, fucking amen. Jouet, like um the only thing i would say um and it's probably fed back to me from one of the players that uh, before one of the games he woke up the morning felt great then went down to the app and his recovery score was shit and i played in his mind throughout the day didn't have a great game so with our guys there some of them are extremely like hypersensitive and like very in tune with their body others now just you know rock up and love the carnage on a saturday night um but if you've got someone that's that impressionable i guess is probably the right word here um that if they see a, a score and they go oh shit i feel bad but i feel good so it's that conflict 
it's like when the COVID symptoms came out initially, like you read them and you feel them, <laughs> you know, Jesus, I do have a tickle on my throat. So it's, it's if you put something in front of a player, they can associate to it or they oftentimes will associate with it, whether it's, whether it's right or wrong. See, because I'm Bivin early. I follow the Tour de France fairly closely and some of the teams released their, a few of them released their like speed and their Watson stuff, but some released their, their whoop band data. And it's so interesting to see like, like, um, after the, a good bit after the fact last year when Pogacar won they said like his his ability to like you know climb up hills unreal do time trails unreal but his ability to recover day on day for three weeks was just through the charts and for stuff like that and like that's ultimately what it's for particularly when you have those short turnarounds being able to recover well between those and then when it's encouraging players that you know sleep really helps you recover then in turn then in turn gets them to have good sleeps with good sleep hygiene um it's obviously in general going to be a big positive cool i was going to say even if they're not 100 percent accurate the idea behind them is they're promoting healthy practices they're promoting eating properly going to bed getting your eight to nine hours and drinking enough water and so like it's it's things that we're blue in the teeth from telling players but for some reason when a watch tells them to do it it's it's gospel but it is making them do it like and that's the grand thing like you're never going to get a wearable that costs you whatever 100 quid that's as accurate as a laboratory but at least it's it's getting good practices across Something we want to touch on, just because it has become over the past years far more topical in rugby, is around concussion. And just from a, an S&C point of view, is because obviously they're making rule changes, they're being quite strict on it. You know, Ross Tucker does huge work for whatever the international body that governs rugby is called. But from S&C end, what can we do to possibly reduce the risk of concussions happening, whether it be through neck shoulder specific work or anything around there or are there other areas you may potentially look at um so yeah that we can talk about technical side of it versus you know our responsibility from a, an snc perspective as well but um the big one is that it's actually the tackler that's in the most um how do you word this that is the biggest risk of, of getting a concussion rather than the person being tackled. Um, if we look at what the research says, neck strength training or neck strength uh, strengthening, it's it's a bit inconclusive. It, it makes sense in, in my head anyways, but it, it's not actually showing up in all the research out there. Some say yes, some say no. What seems to be the biggest one is actually the ability to anticipate the hit. So with this, there, there's probably three big rocks there. Um, reaction time. To to the stimulus in front of you. So if someone does a sidestep on it, you know that you can readjust your body position. Or if there is a an incoming hit, that you can put yourself in a more favorable position. Um, the second will be the vision training, which kind of ties in as well with this. Um, and there's stuff we've done with certain guys inside. Um, there's a I don't know if you've ever come across the the Brock string. Or Brock string, I should say, even Brock. Um, but it, it's it's literally. It can help work on peripheral and stuff like that. And this is probably more for the person being tackled that, you know, you're able to identify the tread out the right-hand side of your eye and then being able to brace for impact. So that's where the next strengthening issue or aspect comes in. So if you have all the strength in the world in your neck, fantastic. But if you're not anticipating the hit, you're probably not going to put it to much use. Your head's already had that whiplash effect before you can actually, you know, create that tension in the neck to, to brace for impact. Um... So we do things with inside from an extra thing perspective, you know, you've got isometric holes and you accompany that with like shrugs or raises. 
Um, we've got the devices like the the Iron Neck is one that's going around now. It's pretty good. Um, you can do Swiss ball work, you know, holes, movements on them. Um, or even something as simple as a bear crawl where you're, you know, applying some manual resistance, whether it be through the hand or with a band, as they, they work through that. So trying to connect up, you know, a movement with an isometric hold in the neck. Um, but yeah, there's, there is that big emphasis on, on tackling and where, where you're putting your head when you do tackle. And I guess the flip side of that is it does fall back on us. If a player is fatigued, you know, that can impair their ability to put their head in the right position. So it's, it's not us outsourcing the blame to coaches or anything. Like we, we do have a, a parts plans as well. Which makes it interesting then around that some of the recommendations, oh, I'm not going to go down like fully this rabbit hole. I just think it's worth mentioning that outlawing tackling at a younger age, I think is going to weaken the skills of players to perceive where a hip is going, where a player is going and how to put themselves in the right position to make that tackle when they're probably at an age where the damage is so unlikely due to like less force, less size, less strength, everything that way. Because it, it's not the same argument as heading in soccer. Heading in soccer, no matter what age, it's a lot of force going down your head. Whether you're like eight years old, 18 year olds or 28 years old. Whereas in rugby, I don't, I don't think it's the same argument at all. No, that's fair. Like, and just the demands of the game are just getting a bit, bit more, bit more aggressive, a bit harder. You know, it's some of the specimens out there and some of the hits that go in. Like, um, as you said, if if you weigh up both sides of the coin, there, <clears throat> is it better exposing children at a younger age to reacting to them situations and being able to anticipate hits and putting their head in the right position, rather than outlawing it till whatever thirteen, fourteen, and then, you know, this new novel skill comes in, um, and you you've got maybe that big fifteen year old displaying, <laughs> um, so yeah, it's 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 a fair point. Something just briefly I want to touch on. I mentioned to you beforehand as we start to wrap up. You coming from the the PE background, doing your your degree, and and, and as I mentioned, we we d- it wasn't heavy on science, but it was very heavy on group and organisations, speaking to people, managing groups, to your nineteen ninety principle and all stuff like that. Because you then went deeper down the the sports science, the S and C, the physiology route, on, a bit unbeknownst to yourself, did you have an awful lot of those more people coaching skills that you were just layering? specific sports science knowledge on top of do you think that was very useful because i hear a lot of coaches say they're the best in the world when it comes to in-depth knowledge but they then have to build the coaching skills on top of it and they may have found it difficult going the opposite direction do you think maybe that has been a help to you in professional coaching yeah and it's probably something i never appreciated when i was doing it but like the, the exposure we got within college you know we, we did 16 weeks structured but we also have modules where we, we worked with children from kind of, you know, lower socioeconomic backgrounds. And even I, I worked with children with disabilities, did swim lessons with them for three to four years of college as well. Um, and it just, to be honest, like S&C coach is knowledge base and there's, there's so much out there as well. And like so many variations, so many ways to, you know, skin the cat as the overused phrase is that a lot of it comes down to how you implement it and how you implement it is based off communication. So whether it be build rapport or you know creating a, a scenario where the the athlete feels what you're trying to get them to to do um for me it was it was huge like so if there's any young coaches out there what it says you know work with diverse populations work with people with you know disabilities or the elderly or you know at a cool camp if it's still i don't know they still call it cool camps john are they? they are yeah they're, they're a rival of my camp so we don't promote them here <laughs> <laughs> or john's camp <laughs> Um, but yeah, it just 
throw yourself in every direction. Um, you know, I, I'm very fortunate, I guess, with my work background that um, even before like maths and PE and, and UL, like I, I worked in a warehouse, I worked in a restaurant, I worked as a, a janitor, I rented bikes and like with each from San Francisco yeah yeah <laughs> um so with each one of those like there's there's life experience and lessons like I remember I was um so the janitor work was down in in Manhattan in New York and um uh I was the only Caucasian guy there and I was I was called Barry White Boy that was me for the summer like <laughs> so like but it was a new environment <laughs> hey Barry White Boy um so like it was it was brilliant exposure for me because it was it was a new environment, um, it was a new set of people, new interests, and I, I think I've I've been able to take all that. And when you have a squad of forty five odd, you know you've some guys that love games of Thrones and some guys that still collect Pokemon cards and stuff like that. And it's it's being able to build that rapport with them based off you know the subtlest thing that I I might have an interest. And I guess like no more than my sporting background, a jack of all trades, I've I've pretty varied interest, or at least I can. I can dive into a lot of different barrels if needs be. Um, so, yeah, I, I would say for me, communication is probably underrated and something I, I definitely didn't appreciate enough when I started off. No, that's an excellent point. Shane, do you want to have you know, any final bits? No, I was going to say that kind of, that's a common enough thread The different coaches we talk to. Like a lot of people would ask what's something not coaching related that you'd recommend other coaches to, to do or like a job they should do before they get into it. And it's it's always around that communication side of things where you can just, like you underestimate how much you can get from just knowing a little bit about a lot of different things even just for opening that door to a to a player who may have just given you an rp score of whatever just five every single time because you never talk to them they just fill it out without thinking and then you ask them one question you talk to them a bit about just their normal life then they'll fill it out or then they'll trust you and they'll kind of give you so much more and yeah i think you hit on it there trust is is the big part here and i think it's it's trust from the player in what you're doing with them and then trust them what they're giving back to you as well. So as we talk about, you know, data being clean or, you know, if you want to action upon data, it needs to be good, good quality. So as you said, if the guy always gives you five, you know, is it because the guy in front of him always says five, you know, so that there's all these little factors here. But then on the far side, if that guy gives you a six, that's, fuck, that's a huge change for him when you're looking at your, your mean or your Z scores versus the guy that, you know, depending on the weather, he might be a, a four to an eight. So... Yeah, there's, there's all these little subtleties that I guess you, you learn as you go. Barry, it's been absolutely fantastic today. Gives loads of really great info. You've been brilliant with your time. Um, if anyone wants to make contact, where could it possibly hit you up? Or, or do you want anyone making contact? Um, I'm not really active on any social platforms, to be honest, apart from my own personal accounts, which um, I'd probably steer clear of. Uh, but if, <laughs> if, you, if you do want to reach out... Um, or you know you can find me probably on linkedin or um barry.o'brien at conicrugby.ie um and more than happy to to chat to people um yeah that's uh, been excellent fair play to you thanks a minute, brian. thanks john thanks shane